back to the Trusted Visions weekly podcast. We apologize. We weren't here last week. We, we had a bunch of client demands and travel and, and sicknesses and all that. So audience, we apologize for missing a week. Um, but it was actually a good refreshing week to kind of get caught up with some of the things we're working on. And we're going to finish off this month, um, unfortunately, without David, because the storm went through and, and he doesn't have internet. But Sean, Welcome back. Um, I'm hoping I still have internet. Otherwise, you're going to have to go on without me because we're on tornado <laughs> warnings. Um, but we're going to continue on this week and, and you know complete this month's topic of really diving into the broker dealer in the weeds side. We, we talked about the advisor in the weeds and the transition in the weeds. Right. And this this week's topic really covers something. I think you would agree, Sean. We hear from every client we talk to about one of the most important things for them with their new firm is the ability for growth. Right, right. And I find it fascinating because how do you truly define growth? Because every broker dealer, and this isn't a knock to broker dealers out there, every broker dealer says, we're the growth experts. Right. So (laughs) how do you put that into context? So we're not going to badmouth any of the broker dealers out there, but we're really going to dig into the weeds on that side of it. And I'm going to start and then I'm going to tee it off to you because there's, in my opinion, really two different subcategories within growth. Right. You have the OSJ or enterprise growth, which I'm going to cover. And then you have the individual advisor growth through MA or succession planning or whatever it may be. Right. So right. With that, you know, we work with a lot of large OSJs. And, and I would say part of our specialty with Trusted Visions is the resources and tools and our hands-on approach with these large groups. And nine times out of 10, an OSJ or enterprise is making a move and their predominant focus is, I wanna continue growth through recruiting. Well, Mm -hmm. again, when you're doing that due diligence, keep in mind, and and again, this isn't a knock to their broker-dealer partners, but when you ask for referrals of other recruiting OSJs, it's not like they're gonna give you those OSJs that have had less than, you know, stellar results. Right, so right. It's important to do your own due diligence and, and even rely on firms like Trusted Visions to navigate through what we've seen um, from a growth standpoint. So the, the first point would be do your research and understand what the actual results are. Right. In addition to that, I apologize, I didn't silence my phone. Um, right. <laughs> in addition to that, there's some broker dealers out there that pay the recruiters differently for recruiting to OSJs versus recruiting to, to direct being direct reports. Right. Understand that and ask those difficult questions. And, and don't only ask those executives within you know, the meetings, ask the recruiters. Right. Ask the recruiter that you're working with. They should, in my opinion, be honest and upfront with you. But that's important to understand is, you know, do if they truly support the OSA model, they shouldn't be paying the recruiter any differently for recruiting to you versus recruiting to a, a, a direct report. Right, right. The last portion I would cover is understand the transition packages. Is and this this has a couple different caveats there. Is some broker dealers, you as the OSA or enterprise leader, if they're doing a t- transition package or upfront money to that advisor. Should that advisor leave if he or she doesn't pay it? Many firms say you as the OSJ or enterprise leader are on the hook for that money that was paid to that advisor. Some don't, 
But it's important to understand because, okay, if you say you're going to go after that advisor, should they default on that note, how, how hard are you going to go after that advisor? Because there's some firms out there that literally send one demand letter and then leave it because, you know what, Sean, as the OFJ or enterprise leader, I'm coming back to you anyway, so I'm protected. So understand that and then taking it a step further, understand does the broker dealer pay less transition money to that advisor you're trying to recruit because of your payouts and pricing as an OSN or enterprise leader? Or is it is it the same as if they went direct? Right. Or do they do they expect you as the OSJ or enterprise leader to pay a portion of that transition money to have skin in the game? Again, a lot of our clients don't really know that that occurs in the industry. And, and I think David and even you have said in the past, Sean, know what you're good at. And our clients are phenomenal at guiding clients through you know, retirement and investing and all that. When you start getting this granular into the weeds on OSJ recruiting or enterprise recruiting, it's important when you're doing your due diligence to not only talk about growth, but get into the weeds and granular on, on what that looks like. So I'm going to pause there, Sean, and you know, piggy or throw it over mm-hmm. to you to talk about kind of the, the individual advisor from a, sure. you know, we have a lot of advisors that say, hey, I want to grow through acquiring other practices right. or, hey, I want to be a succession or continuity plan. And I, I know we've both seen this where, hey, Sean, if you come join us, we got an acquisition that you could do. As, as soon as you come on board, you come on board and supposedly that acquisition is gone by the wayside. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about the, the M&A side and the succession planning side for individual advisors? Sure, sure. Well, to your point, that acquisition that they promised, they promised to about 10 other advisors. So that, <laughs> that's, what, that's what usually happens. But, um, you know, for a sole practitioner, just from my experience, in my opinion, I believe that is the best way to grow. Um, I, I've, and I'm sure you have as well, but I've personally witnessed advisors go from $100,000, $200,000 in production over a span of five, six years. They're at a million dollars in production because they had a couple acquisitions take place. So it's certainly a, a winning model if you're, you know, if you're strategic about it and you're with the right firm. So there are um, several important factors that a sole practitioner should consider, you know, when looking to grow, you know, in that fashion. Um, number one, when you're looking at your new broker dealer, you know, you know, financing is something that you definitely want to talk about. Um, at the end of the day, these practices are not free. Um, these advisors are selling their book, you know, for retirement a lot of times. You know, so, um, you know, they're going to want the best deal. They're going to want to negotiate. And, and that comes with a premium and it comes with the tax involved. So um, financing is, is huge. And I would start with the broker dealer. So if you're in conversations with your new broker dealer, talk about financing. Um, you know, from my experience, you know, typically the larger firms uh, offer financing and can offer up to 90% of the purchase price uh, for a book of business. Um, I, you know, I've seen some, you know, maybe mid-sized firm, if you want to call it that, may go as high as 50%. And some smaller firms that are less capital, capitalized may not, you know, offer any financing for their advisors. Um, in, in all cases, however, there's typically strategic partners and vendors um, that broker dealers have that will do the financing for you. However, once again, from my experience, the broker dealer financing is certainly the best. Um, you know, it is as far as interest rates, 
Um, it is as far as flexibility. You know, typically, you know, with a broker dealer, if you're in a position where they're financing a book for you, um, they're very flexible with the payment schedule. You know, you know, I've, I've witnessed some broker dealers, uh, you know, maybe withhold a payment requirement maybe six months out. Uh, you know, some are flexible with the payment schedule. As you grow, as this book of business begin to monetize for you, um, then the payments increase. So it's just definitely a lot of flexibility as opposed to outside vendor. They can still get it done and some are very competitive, but it's essentially a loan. You know, it's essentially, you know, here's the amount you request it. Here's the interest rate, you know, you know, payment due this date over the next X, Y, Z years. So financing, in my opinion, is huge. Uh, interest rates, I want to touch on that because I did mention that, um, you know, you want to reiterate that the interest rates are typically better, uh, you know, from the broker dealer standpoint. Obviously, the broker dealer benefits <laughs> if you were to acquire the practice and keep the assets in-house or if you're acquiring a practice from an advisor outside of the broker dealer, it's even more beneficial. So you will find um, you know, the interest rate much better. Uh, but there are a number of uh, vendors out there now to where you can negotiate with outside vendors as well. If you have to uh, you know, retain that financing outside of the broker dealer, there are enough uh, firms in the game now where you have some negotiation power there. Um, also, another thing to really consider is the pool of candidates you're going to have access to. Great point. You're a sole practitioner and you're looking to buy a business. You want to make sure there's a business to buy. Um, so typically with larger firms, um, you have more of a pool as opposed to smaller firms. Um, smaller firms, you may find that less advisors are retiring. Um, you may also find that there may not be any advisors in proximity to you. And I believe that is very important when you're coming in as a sole practitioner looking to buy a practice. Our, our business is relationship driven. Um, proximity and being able to shake someone's hand and look them in the eyes is huge, you know, and, you know, for the trust factor. Um, at a larger firm, you have more advisors that are in closer proximity where you can execute that. You know, you can actually meet with someone and, and that just increases your chances of acquiring business. Uh, just a few additional questions that you may want to ask um, if you're a sole practitioner, um, you know, looking to buy a practice, be specific with the, the recruiter you're working with. Ask them about the succession planning and business development or continuity planning team. Um, ask them exactly what they do. Right. How many uh, individuals are, uh, you know, hired to help me acquire and find a, a new practice? Um, is it one? Is it 10? Is it do you have a full team? You have regional support. Be specific. And if you are in that category where you want to acquire practice, how proactive is this team? Um, will they find help me find the book of business? Um, you know, will they, you know, be the sole, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak, that really gets out there and uh, help me achieve my goal? Or is this just a team to say we have a succession planning team? And they're not really proactive. They're not, you know, you lob up a message and no one calls you back. Um, so, so you you want to make sure that they are they are proactive. Um, you know, however, I, I do believe that, you know, if you can you know, pin down um, those questions and, and make sure you're aware of the things that the topics I just mentioned, uh, you may find yourself in a good scenario if the broker dealer can supply um, that for you. 
Agreed. I always I always loved some of those broker dealers out there that say we're the growth experts and then their MA or succession planning team has one person. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how much capacity does that one person have? And and those are great points, Sean. I would say one other thing with the succession and continuity planning, when you really get into the weeds, understand if you as an advisor don't have a succession or continuity plan. Many broker dealers have a plan in place at the broker dealer dealer level. However, you know, it's it's basically saying, Sean, if if you become disabled or pass, we'll pay your beneficiary one times or one and a half times. Right. Some broker dealers say, hey, I'm only going to pay one times T12 revenue to your beneficiary and that's it. And then we'll sell the right. book and, and keep the rest. Some right. broker dealers say, hey, we'll pay one and a half times up front and then we'll pay the rest after we sell the book. So it's important to understand, don't just ask for our audience, don't just ask, hey, do you have a succession and continuity planning you know, right. uh, program in place? Understand the details about it and, and if there's a cost to it because some broker dealers charge a cost to it and taking it back to, to two weeks ago when we were talking about transition packages, those are soft dollars. Right. You right. can negotiate that as part of your package for that to be waived for a period of time. So, so great points there, Sean. For this last portion, I'd kind of like to ping pong it back and forth with, with David not being here. And, and we've seen it and, and you've worked with some really large OSJs or enterprises throughout your career. Some have had great success, some not so much success. And, right. and let's be honest out there is to our audience that yes, there are OSJs or enterprise leaders that get preferential recruiting treatment with that broker dealer. Right. It's just the reality of it. And so let, let's start with this side of it is, Sean, if, if you are an OSJ or enterprise leader and recruiting is important, how do they go about building that rapport and that relationship with that business development team? If they're a nationwide enterprise leader, how do they build that rapport and relationship with those that business development team in-house to try and get some lead flow? I mean, how do the OSJs that you work with build that rapport? Sure. Well, you know, it started with building a relationship with me when I was a corporate recruiter during the recruiting phase, right? So, um, you know, during while they were exploring their broker-dealer options, it was very important to, you know, ask me those questions up front. When I was a corporate recruiter trying to bring them on, on board, ask, hey, you know, how involved will you be? Um, so if you're an OSJ or enterprise, ask the recruiter you're working with, especially the firm recruiter, corporate recruiter, hey, how involved are you going to be once I'm on board? You know, what you know, what are some of the things that you've done uh, to help OSJs? How many OSJs do you work with now? Um, get an idea of the leverage that you may have with this particular corporate recruiter. And then take it a little step further and say, hey, what are some of the things that the broker dealer um, does for, you know, you know, OSJs to help them recruit? I was at a broker dealer before and they had a great uh, marketing campaign. They launched for OSJs that really wanted to uh, recruit. How they determined if the OSJ really wanted to recruit was the OSJ had some skin in the game. Um, and then then the broker dealer I represented matched you know, whatever they put to the table and, and we purchased uh, marketing plans, whether it was um, you know, email blasting, whether it was uh, cold calling campaigns. So we put all that together, ask the corporate recruiter if something like that is available. 
you know, um, and then if it is available, ask how many OSJs may take part in it and what have what has been the success ratio. I think you want to make it known prior to coming in. Um, this is something you want to do and, and start because there you're still in negotiation phase. Um, I always encourage advisors to get things done when you're in negotiation phase. So when you're, when you're in negotiation phase, you can do that. And you maybe have, hey, I've, I've extended offers to OSJs where the firm committed to administering these marketing activities as part of the deal. So you want to want to get that done firsthand, because if it's one of those things where you didn't think about recruiting until you affiliated or after your affiliation, I'm not going to say it's not going to get done. Kind of like product. Right. <laughs> right. But it, but it, I'm not going to suggest it's not going to get done because I've worked when I was on that side of it. I worked with advisors, uh, OSJs who I didn't necessarily recruit. And I helped them because they had great value propositions. Um, however, it does become, you know, one of those things where it's a little bit more complex. I'll just say that, um, you know, once you raise your hand after you're affiliated. Yeah. And, and I would piggyback on that, Sean. And those are great points. I, I would piggyback on as an OSJ or enterprise leader, because we work with both sides of it, the successful ones and not such so successful. Mm-hmm. You the, the OSJs and enterprise leaders that, that are listening to this in our audience understand that if if a corporate recruiter or any recruiter is sending you a lead, mm-hmm. the best way to continue to get more and more leads is to close that lead. Because right. Right. a corporate recruiter, as we've talked about on previous podcasts, they have goals. And if they're sending you and funneling you a bunch of leads and they're not getting closed, th- that's going to negatively impact them. So right. Right. If, if you're not closing them as an OSJ or enterprise leader, take a step back or even ask the recruiter, what could I have done better in this situation? That's what I've found with, with working with large enterprises and OSJs is having that open dialogue. And it's on both sides, both the recruiter and the OSJ or enterprise leader. It's a give and take relationship, but it's got to be an open and honest relationship to where both of you can take constructive criticism to be successful. And those that can do that, and both the recruiter, when speaking to our audience, you as a corporate recruiter or any recruiter, be bold enough to stand up to your OSJs and enterprise enterprise leaders if you want them to be successful. So, so great points there. Now, the last point on this OSJ and enterprise leader standpoint is working with third party recruiting firms, mm-hmm. and you know how to navigate that. And so, I'm going to kick that off, and then we'll ping pong it back and forth, Sean, if that's okay. Is in addition to the business development teams out there, I mean, obviously you could be talking to your wholesalers and getting referrals right. from them if you're wanting to grow, right. but working with third-party recruiting firms, it's okay to ask your broker-dealer, hey, can you give me a list of your top 10, top 25 third-party recruiting firms so that I can reach out to them and talk about my growth strategies and my value proposition? Now, I would forewarn you that this takes some time and effort as an OSJ or enterprise leader. We probably get at least two of those calls a week of OSJs or enterprise leaders that that want us to help them grow, and we're not opposed to that. But it takes building that trusting relationship, to your point with the business development teams in-house, that it takes some time because most firms like ours have established relationships with large OSJs or enterprises. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so understand, reach out to them, but remain consistent with, with reaching out to them and, and right. talk to them about your value prop. And, and don't just say, hey, here's our payouts. Here's this. 
what makes you different than the other OSJs or enterprise leaders that this that those third-party recruiting firms are working with? That's the important side of it. Now, keep in mind, and I think we talked about this in previous weeks, does your broker-dealer pay the entire third-party recruiting fee? Do they require you to pay half of it? This is just a, a cautious reminder. If the broker-dealer does require you to pay half of it, don't let that first conversation with the third-party recruiting firm be like, hey, Sean, I really want to work with you, but I'm not too excited about paying half the recruiting fee. Right. <laughs> it always starts the conversation off wrong. Not that it's all about money, but it's, hey, if we can close some business with you, then it's important for you to you know abide by whatever your broker dealer's right. requirements right. are in terms of paying. Sean, for, from your perspective, OSJs and enterprise leaders, how do they go about building relationships with third-party recruiting firms? Well, I, I just you know, think they do what you mentioned. You, you know, you want to get the top firms and reach out to, to those individuals. Um, you know, you definitely want to you know find out from your broker dealer, you know, the structure, the pay structure. If you're going to you know pay half or if they pay the entire um, you know external recruiting fee. The broker dealers I've worked with or represent in the past, they typically pay the entire fee. But I do know of some firms that that will have the OSJ pay half. Um, you know, just reach out to those uh, you know third party recruiters. You know, as you mentioned, and you know, I don't think there's. I think that's a great way to do that. If you have some marketing um, literature information, you know, you want to uh, submit that to the third party recruiters. Um, if you have some success stories. Um, that, that always fare well. You want to you know make sure the third party recruiters that you work with you know, know of those. And so um, it's almost as if you're marketing yourself because you really are, because, you know, quite frankly, the, the pool is, is, is large with OSJs looking to recruit and is very competitive, you know, from um, a value prop, from a you know, pricing call standpoint. So you as an OSJ need to make sure that you have a strong value proposition and a strong, uh, you know, message for, you know, advisors that are looking to possibly join, you yep. know, OSHA team. So I would say, you know, work on, if I had to, in a nutshell, work on your value prop, you know, work on your marketing, and then, you know, just kind of, you know, reach out to these uh, third-party recruiters and, um, you know, share your story. Yeah, and I... tell me, Sean, one thing came to mind as you were talking, um, and I have... an opinion about this, but I don't want to give it away. What about, what advice would you give to OSJ or enterprise leaders when a third-party recruiting firm is coming to them saying, hey, pay me a five or $7,000 a month retainer to help you grow? Um, I'm going to let you chime in before I give my opinion about that. But what's your thoughts on retainers when helping uh, OSJs or enterprise leaders grow? Well, in our in our business, this is just my opinion. In our business, I don't think retainers are a great way to capitalize your resources. Um, yeah, you know, I personally believe that you know you want to work with recruiting firms that you know all are all in agreement that hey, we're going to pay on closed business yep. uh, because that that just benefits you. I think the five thousand you may pay. An external recruiter or a consultant or whatever their you know title is to uh, you know earn business for you. I think you could you're better capitalized using that in some other marketing capacity. 
Um, yeah, that's just my opinion. Uh, I, I couldn't agree you. more. <laughs> I, I've always said if, if you're paying a retainer, it's because they're not sure of the results that they can provide. Is, right, is right. typically the way I would say it. And so wrapping this up, well, one thing I would say to OSJs and enterprise leaders is when you're working with third-party recruiting firms like Trusted Visions, if, if you're working with them for the due diligence process of finding a new broker-dealer, ask them what their plan is for helping you with growth through recruiting. Because we do some unique things from a marketing perspective, and, and we, to your point, Sean, put our money where our mouth is to help these enterprise leaders grow, and it's a win-win. But ask those 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 third-party recruiting firms, what are you going to do to help me grow? And don't let them just say, hey, I'm going to help add advisors to you. Okay, well, how are you going to do that? And what steps are you going to take? Dig deep into the weeds. And that was the purpose of this month's topic is in the weeds, not high level, understand for certainty what it looks like. So, Sean, thank you as always for, for being part of this audience Please comment on our LinkedIn page, uh, any thoughts you have about this week's uh, topic. Follow us on our YouTube channel at Trusted Visions Placement and Consulting. Sean, have a great week. Audience, thank you for all that you do. We appreciate you, and we'll be back next week with a new monthly topic. All right.